All right, well, if you guys want to grab your Bibles, we are going to be jumping now into Matthew 5. We're going to be continuing our series in the book of Matthew, exploring the good news kingdom that Jesus, our King, is bringing. If you've been with us for a couple weeks, you know that we're just jumping back into this series. We had been in a fairly lengthy but amazing series called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality over these last couple months. And in many ways, if you think back to some of the topics that we talked about in that series, I think that that series in many ways represented a lot of the new and fresh work that the Spirit of Jesus is doing here in our midst. And so I was just personally really thankful for that series. And simultaneously, I'm really thankful that we're back in Matthew. I'm really thankful that we are back walking verse by verse through the scriptures, hearing from the Spirit each week out of the book of Matthew. So over these last couple weeks, Scott has kind of caught us back up to speed with where we are in Matthew 5, looking at Jesus teaching on what the blessed life actually looks like. We've gone over Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12, and we've seen that blessing comes when we experience the presence of Jesus with us. We've seen that a lot of these, what we would normally think of as just ethical commands that we're going to be hearing about, they're actually just showing us how to live out life in the kingdom. Because in Jesus' kingdom, what happens to the poor in spirit? What happens to people who are suffering? What happens to people who feel they're being oppressed? They're being lifted up. In Jesus' kingdom, the low are brought up, and the high are brought low. The persecuted are comforted, and those who are longing for God find him. One of the things that I was really thankful for that Scott kept hammering over these last couple of weeks, is realizing that true blessing cannot just be found in physical things alone, though those are good gifts. But how often, if you think about it, how often do we say, oh, I'm so blessed? And it's because you just got stuff. It's because you get physical substances, which are gifts. But is that really how we measure our blessing? No, we measure our blessing when we realize that no matter what state or situation we are in in life, whether we are being brought high or being brought low, The presence of Jesus with us in that state or situation is where true blessing is found. So now in our passage today, coming off of those Beatitudes, Jesus is going to make two very distinct, very well heard, though maybe not well understood statements to his disciples. He is going to tell them, you are salt and you are light. So we're going to hear this passage read now. I'm going to ask Krista again. Thank you, Krista, for all the sprints back and forth. Chris is going to read for us our passage today, which is going to be Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is God's word. Let's pray. Jesus, we're really thankful for, again, this chance to be together. Jesus, we're thankful that your presence is with us because of the Spirit. 
because of the Spirit who's opened our hearts to want to see and know Jesus. And so now as we go to your word, we ask for help. I ask for your help, God, to be able to speak clearly and to help all of us understand what you're communicating to us here. And we ask, Jesus, that out of this, you would continue to show us how to be your faithful people today. I even ask, God, for those whose hearts, whose minds, maybe are really distracted right now, thinking of gazillions of different things going on. Spirit, we ask now for the ability to hear you speak to us, even in light of all those gazillions of things going on right now. I can pray this because our king is on his throne. Amen. So this week, in the course of my prep for this sermon and my study, I came across a thought that I think very uniquely and accurately describes what Jesus is doing. Not just now in Matthew 5, but kind of throughout all that we've been seeing him do in the Gospel of Matthew. Yes, he's talking about blessing. Yes, he's talking about the presence of God coming. But ultimately, what is Jesus really talking about? He's talking about revolution. He's using revolutionary-type language. He's talking about the revolt of him and his followers. Being the true Israel, the revolt against the status quo of the day, the revolt against the powers of Satan, sin, and death that had been ruling the world. He's talking about an invading kingdom pressing into planet Earth now by which he and his band of followers are going to bring God's new creation. But often his followers were like, yeah, revolt. Let's go kick the Romans' butts, right? It's these governments here, right? That's the revolt. And Jesus is like, no. No, guys, I'm talking about a different revolt. And if you just begin to think about that, don't we all love a good revolution? We all love revolutions, the ideas of what revolutions talk about, the, even the romantic notions associated with revolt of the oppressed rising up against the powerful. I mean, think about revolutions that we know of, the American Revolution. Hopefully you know something about that. The French Revolution. For those of you who don't know anything about history, maybe you know about the revolt of the districts in the Hunger Games. We all love a good revolution. And if you think about it, all revolts have two primary things going on. They promise to do better than the predecessor, and they promise that they will deliver on the new ideals they're offering. Let's think about that. They promise to do better than the predecessor. They promise that they will deliver on the new ideals they are offering. Quick side note, doesn't that sound like something that happens every four years in American politics? We will do better than before, and here's how we will deliver on these ideals. Don't let your brain wander on that too much. We'll talk about that more later on. But this idea of promising that we will do better, and we will be the ones who deliver. So in Jesus' own revolution, was he doing those things? Remember, Jesus is really trying to show that he's actually just being faithful to the Old Testament story, that he's actually the one who's going to bring the fulfillment that Israel had failed to bring to the world. He's showing that the story of the predecessor Israel is now being completed in him. So in one sense, he's promising to do better than the predecessor, which was Israel, who had failed in its mission. But how was Jesus going to deliver how would Jesus deliver on the ideals that he was now offering? How would he show that he and his followers were actually going to be proven as true? By having followers who were salt and light. 
In this section of verses, verses 13 through 16, Jesus is showing us the way that his revolution, his new creation kingdom is going to go forward, that these ideals will be delivered, and it's actually going to take over the whole globe through having followers who are salt and who act like light. But what in the world does that mean? If that's the way the kingdom's going to come, through followers who are salt and light, then what does it mean to be salt and to be light? Asking what salt and light means is really important. So I want us to kind of pause on that for a second and just step back and say, okay, well, we've got to interpret what that means. But how do we interpret anything? How do we figure out, how do we discern meaning from a text? And then how do we know how to apply it to us Today, So I want to introduce you to a word that we shouldn't be afraid of called hermeneutics, which just simply means, how do we interpret something and find its meaning? And this relates to the Bible, but it also relates to any books in one sense, because the most important question we can ask is not, what does this mean to me? That's really important. And when you read your Bible, it's really helpful to know, what does this text mean to me? But if you read it and ask that first, you're probably going to get a lot of really weird things. If you think about how weird Christianity is and all the different branches and denominations and crazy books and crazy heretical teachings, they often ask that question first. What does this mean to me? Salt and light. Here's what I think that means to me. Wrong question to ask first. The right question to ask first in any hermeneutics, any way we interpret is, What did the original hearers get from this? What did this mean to them? When Jesus said, be salt and light to first century Palestinians, what did that mean to them? Because if we can begin to figure that out, we'll probably be able to figure out what that means for us now today. Does that make sense? So the correct first question we want to ask is, what did salt and light mean to the original hearers? And I would again encourage you, Do this in all of your Bible study. Whenever you read your Bible, fight the urge to just say, okay, here's what I think this means to me, go. No, take some time and say, okay, Lord, what what did this mean to people at the time? When you were saying this to people thousands of years ago, here's how they would have understood that. Oh, okay, I think I see now a little bit more of how this applies to me. And if you have other questions about that, there's whole books devoted to this that I will gladly recommend to you after the sermon. So, let's ask the question, what did salt and light mean in the first century context? Let's look at the reality of salt. What did it mean to be salt? Let's look again at the text. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out, trampled under people's feet. So, what is salt? Well, it's mineral. It's a preservative. People use salt to keep things from rotting. In the ancient time, that was really important when they didn't have a ton of different preservation techniques. When you add salt to food, let me ask you a question. Does salt make things taste salty or does salt make make things taste more like it's supposed to taste? the latter. Think about this. When you add the perfect amount of salt to a dish, you taste the dish more. You don't say, ooh, that tastes really good and salty. I mean, sometimes you do. 
That's not the point of salt. Salt enhances whatever it is. If you add a little bit of salt to broccoli, you actually figure out what broccoli is supposed to taste like. Maybe for some of you, you need to start doing that, and then you can eat your broccoli. <laughs> so think about this. The right amount of salt makes things taste like they're supposed to. But salt is also used as a preservative and to restore even the body. Salt, medically, with our bodies is really important. Salt helps deliver nutrients to different parts of our body. Salt keeps things from rotting. Creates a vitality. Salt creates a permanence. And in the old, uh, the ancient world, there weren't many things that could make things last, whether because of the heat, whether because of climate, so salt is an agent of change. Salt is intended to be applied to something and to help it change, to be preserved, to be sustained. And we're going to talk about, OK, you can let your brain start to go down that road. We're going to talk more about the implications of that in a second. But let's think about light. What is the importance of light? What does Jesus say about light? Look at verses 14 through 16. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus says, you are the light. And he gives two pictures of what light does. He says, light coming from a distant city cannot be hidden. It would be foolish to try to say, oh, I can cover this up. No, because a city on a hill, even thinking about the imagery of seeing a city in the distance at nighttime, you see it. You know it's there. This one time I was with some buddies, and we were backpacking in uh, the Appalachian Mountains and Shenandoahs near the Charlottesville area. And we're up on this mountain, super far away from civilization. You turn off the lights. It's pitch black. You can see stars, but there's a glow in the distance, like legit. We're up in these mountains, and literally there's a glow. And it was either Waynesboro or Charlottesville. Like, you can't hide that. It's pitch black, but you can't hide that. You could see it for miles. So light makes things visible, even if they're trying to be hidden. And he says, likewise, when you turn on a light, or in the ancient times, a lamp, the point is that people can see even if it's dark out. The lamp gives light to all in the house. That's why you don't put a basket on it. The whole point is it gives light. So light is intended to reveal. Light is intended to expose things. Light brings clarity. Light brings understanding. So in one sense, that's the functional purpose. But again, we need to think, OK, so but to the first century here is the people that originally heard this. If they heard Jesus say, you're the light of the world, what would they have thought? Again, people growing up in the story of Israel, being Jewish-born people, knowing their customs, knowing their traditions, knowing the stories that had been passed on, to hear Jesus say, you're the light, that would have done all kinds of things in their brain. Because think about this. Light is what God spoke into the chaos and darkness of nothingness before creation. He spoke light. Light is what Israel was supposed to be doing to the world, bringing light. Light, think about the psalmist. He said, when I'm in a dark night of the soul, what do I need? I need 
light to break in to my world. Light is how Jesus himself is referred to all throughout the New Testament. And so now here in Matthew 5, Jesus is saying to his disciples, you're the light of the world. The light you've received from me is now the light that you have going forward. You give that same light to others. Think about that. What does that mean? What would they have thought it meant? What do we do with that now today? So we've kind of looked at, okay, here's what's going on with salt. Here's what's going on with light. We kind of see, okay, here's a little bit of probably why Jesus was talking about that. But what does that mean today in Chesapeake, Virginia? in 2021? What are specific ways that disciples of Jesus today, the church here in Hampton Roads, what ways are we called to be those agents of change, those agents of renewal? What are ways that we're called now to be light, to bring clarity, to bring understanding? How do we interpret this and apply it now to us today? Well, what's amazing is that we don't just have to guess because the whole work of the New Testament was figuring this out. The New Testament was written as different people in different cities through different writers were figuring out what it meant to be salt and light in their context. So before we again talk about us, let's see some really practical ways this got fleshed out, okay? Let's go to the book of Ephesians. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. Again, what's so amazing is that the New Testament is not just written as these ethical commands. No, we're seeing different ways, different contexts, that the realities of the gospel came and were translated into different settings, into different circumstances, in different cultures, in different areas of sin. So to the church in Ephesus, Paul was writing to his friends there, explaining how the truths of Jesus get lived out in everyday life. He's writing about how the life of a Christian is supposed to be distinct from the world. So let's jump into verse 7. So Ephesians 5, verse 7. So in talking about the world, he says, Therefore do not be partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern... What is pleasing to the Lord? Hold on to that phrase in your brain. We'll come back to that. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. That's what light does. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do you see what Paul's doing there? He isn't just describing this list of morals for them to follow. He's telling them, you guys are now the children of light because of Jesus. Look at verse 10. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. This means figure out how to be the light. Discern, okay, Lord, how do we do what's pleasing to you? How do we be light here? It doesn't mean, oh, let me discern what is pleasing to the Lord. No, it means figure out how to be salt and light where you are. 
In Ephesus, what would it mean to be salt and light? What would be things that you could do to be agents of salt and agents of light? Figure out how to be at light, how to show the truth where you currently are. Discern what the light means right where you are. For the church in Ephesus then, Paul lists out the ways in the rest of the book of Ephesians of how they could be salt and light in Ephesus. What about when it comes to drinking? What about when it comes to sexual ethics? What about when it comes to marriage? What about when it comes to working out problems with people in community, all that reconciliation stuff? Yeah, figure that out. Figure out what it looks like to be salt and light in Ephesus. So if we take our cues from Scripture, we actually see the New Testament doing that very work of discerning what it means to be salt and light. What then today would be ways that you, in your specific setting, environment, culture, and life, what would be ways that you could say, I can be salt and light here? I've just got three specific kind of broad ways that I want to just begin to get our brains thinking about this before we close. Because what's amazing is that you and your world will probably have very distinct and even different things than things in my world. Does that make sense? You're going to have to discern ways that you can be salt and light. So I've got three really broad ways that I think for us as a church, based on where we are right now, ways that we can be salt and light. The first is through being a people of uncommon courage. We can be salt and light by being a people of uncommon courage. If you think about it, we live in a day where both personally but also culturally there is a massive need for courageous faiths. Faith, excuse me. Personally, I think that Jesus is calling us to trust him because right now fear has the premium on everything. Whether it's fear about money, fear about what you eat, fear about politics, fear about the economy, fear about your health. Fear has never before been used like such a weapon as it is being used right now. Fear is what makes you buy things. Fear is what makes you think you need to control everything. We live our lives bombarded by, going to fear this today and then tomorrow I'm probably going to be told to fear this thing, then tomorrow I've got to fear this other thing. We're bombarded by things to fear. So what would it look like to not just say, okay, well, i got to just stop being afraid. No, to say, in light of this culture of fear, what would it look like to be salt and light? What would it look like for the people of Jesus, corporately and individually, to be a people of uncommon courage? Think about what that means culturally. In a world where we are being told how we should or shouldn't act according to culture. We wouldn't fear what culture tells us to do because we'd actually be a people, because of the courage that we have in Jesus, we'd actually say, no, I'm going to take my cues from what Jesus has told me to do. And I think specifically for my generation, maybe this is most of us in this room, I think that we're afraid of truth. And for many of us, that's why we need to step into faith in this uncommon courage. I think that we are afraid of saying we know the truth. We have the truth. I think for many of us, we are publicly afraid to hold on to the claims of Jesus. We're afraid to tell someone, no, I believe you're wrong, and here's why I believe you're wrong. I think that we're afraid to do that. 
But why? Why are we afraid? I think for some of us, and I include myself in this, it's not because truth has died. It's because we have traded relationship for Jesus, with Jesus for more of a cultural compromise. I think for my generation, Christians, us millennials, those who've maybe just begun to enter adulthood, those who've maybe begun to enter adulthood just in the last couple decades, I think that in many ways we have traded in being known as followers of Jesus with just a desire to just fit in. I just want to sink into culture. I don't want to rock the boat too much. Definitely don't want to offend anybody. Don't want to be, you know, un-PC. Don't want to offend anybody. Just want to be nice. Why have we been coddled into thinking like this? Again, I want you to ask yourself, is that me? Do I just try to sit in with the culture and not really do anything that would rock the boat? I think for some of us, it's because we've bought the lie that if the truth is offensive, then it must be wrong, right? Friends, hear the lie in that. If something offends people, it must be wrong. That is a deep, deep, sinister lie. Because not only is that a denial of the gospel, because the gospel does offend, but the gospel will never go forward if we live like that. If you and I live like that, the people that we know will just continue to sit and dwell in darkness. So for some of us, the single most loving thing we could do is to be people of uncommon courage who call out to people and demonstrate the need to actually repent of sin and believe in the good news of Jesus. I think for this generation of Christians to be salt and to be light, we need courage to resist compromise and actually bank on Jesus and take him at his word. This is what salt and light do. They're agents of change, meaning they're willing to engage and not just compromise. I think also, for many of us, there's a real call for uncommon courage because we hide and compromise because our truest confidence is actually in us. Our deepest confidence lies inside of me and my ability to figure things out. And I think for many of us, this is why we're afraid to step out. I think for some of us, we need to begin to do some own self-work on, no, I can be confident, not because of who I am, but because of who I am in Jesus. I can relinquish self-confidence and put my confidence there. Again, if you think about it, this is where the good news of Jesus actually begins to meet us in our specific fears and where we actually find courage to be salt and light. I think for some of us, maybe our gospel is just too puny. Think about that. Maybe your view of the power and scope of the gospel is too puny because you've never put yourself in places where you absolutely have to trust it. You've only ever allowed yourself to be in circumstances or situations where I can, I can control that, and they're not too weird of a friend, so I guess I could be friends with them, and that's not too big of a change in life, so I guess I could do that. Friends, if we live our lives like that, the gospel will only stay that big. If we don't allow ourselves to be put in circumstances, situations, relationships where it's like, Lord, I need you to show up. I need to figure out how does the gospel get fleshed out in this type of way in life. And again, if this is 
hitting a chord with you at all, which it has been doing for me all week, don't hear the voice of shame. Hear the voice of, yeah, you've tried to keep things safe, probably because you've been hurt in the past. But are you willing to say, I believe the gospel's big enough that I can be moved into a circumstance or a relationship or a situation where I might have to trust God here. This is going to be outside of my comfort zone. Do you think the gospel is going to be big enough to meet you there? I think it is. I think your view of the gospel will expand of its power and its scope in ways that it can meet you. Because if you think about that, if we can be people who actually say, safety is not my biggest prerogative. I think Jesus is calling me to be salt and light here. So I can maybe take a step of faith in this direction. Because what's crazy then is then you could actually take a step towards something that normally would just be dark. But wait a minute. We're bringing the light with us, though. So we could actually move into some of those places. So again, I think that in this vein of uncommon courage, I think the Spirit is probably calling some of us and asking, are you willing to put yourself in a place where you have no choice but to trust God? That doesn't mean do stupid and unwise things. No, of course we're called to be wise. It doesn't mean put yourself in situations where something really, really terrible could happen. Though, what would those things be in your mind? What would be those things in your mind where like, oh, well, if this happened, this would be the worst thing ever? Would it? Is that something maybe the Spirit's calling you to do? Again, we don't do stupid things, but we actually ask, okay, Spirit, is this something you're pressing on me to do? Because I think that if we as a church corporately began to think through this lens of a people of, being, of having uncommon courage, I think we'd all know pretty quickly, oh, here's where I go be salt and light now. I think I know. And for some of us, maybe we just need to start praying about this. Maybe you don't know yet. But I think if you actually commit to prayer and that the Spirit is going to show you areas to step out. Another quick area that I think we can be salt and be light is by being real flesh and blood people. Real flesh and blood people make great agents of salt and light. We live in a time, again, when many people culturally are turned off by Christianity. And honestly, some of that is warranted. The church is often the place of real hypocrisy. The church is often the place where people in power just try to oppress and control other people. So how do we be salt and light? By being real flesh and blood people. Real people who struggle with real issues, who aren't afraid of our lack and insufficiency, or the fact that we don't have our act together. Often Christians are people who are just seen as being really fake. Because they give off of this aura of, I've got to have my act together or else I'm going to be a bad witness. Maybe a bad witness for yourself as a savior. Except that's not what we're doing here. We can be honest. We can be broken in public. We don't need to act like we have it together all the time. And again, we often think, oh, well, I'm being a bad witness if I don't look like everything is perfect because I follow Jesus. Who's the savior in that setting? You are. What if we could be really big sinners because we have an amazing Savior who actually, in our brokenness, we get to point people towards? Again, 
being real people, real flesh and blood people, people who really can live in the moment with people, with their hurt, with their pain, with their emotions, that means you can just listen to people. That means that you can share honestly about your own life and the crazy, crappy mess that is your life. Again, friends, where's your sufficiency? If it's in you and how I've got to boop, boop, here's my life all perfectly put together. Look, see, when you follow Jesus, you'll be like me. Really? That's what you want to draw people to? Again, I don't think any of us intentionally do that. But when we act like our life has to be this perfect, organized box, who's the Savior? Whoa, you sure have your act together. I really want to be like you. No. Here's my life. Here's my crap. Here's my struggles. You know what? Jesus is meeting me there. I don't know the way forward in all these things, but he's actually going to show up and meet me. What's your crap? What's your brokenness? Here's how he's meeting me in mine. We can be real flesh and blood people with our wounds, with our scars, with everything. Because then, you'd probably have some pretty clear opportunities to be salt and light if you were a person of real flesh and blood. One last thing as we go to close. One last way that we can be salt and light is by being a people of faithfulness. Remember, we're talking about living out these beatitudes, being salt and light, showing Jesus' presence and kingdom. But where do most of us live our lives? In the mundane, in the boring stuff of life, right? In the endless diaper changes. In the Wednesday morning, having to wake up and go through the grind again. In the Thursday morning commute, when for some of you, God forbid, maybe you're stuck at the tunnel. The not-so-exciting things of life, cutting the grass, doing the chores, finishing a homework assignment, taking out the trash, loving your spouse, disciplining your kids, showing up with friends or people who you'd rather just stay at home. It'd be so much easier to just Netflix and invite your friends Ben and Jerry over. Sorry, that just came to me, and that's like real life for me. Friends, people of everyday faithfulness are people who show salt and light. Because if you think about it, it's not just the high top, mountain top moments of amazing spirituality that Jesus wants to meet us. Jesus wants to meet you when you're stuck in traffic. Isn't that amazing? He wants to meet you when you're like, oh my gosh, it's 6.30. I really don't want to go hang out with these people. Am I sick? Maybe I don't have to go. Friends, he's going to show up there. He's going to meet you there wants to walk with you in all of those areas where he's calling you to be faithful, calling you to keep going forward. The areas of your life right now where you know these areas, maybe other people don't, but the areas where he's calling you to a quiet faith, being faithful there. The simple acts of taking your son or daughter aside and correcting them for the gazillionth time. He's calling you to be faithful right there. You know, what was amazing is our kids were talking about what it looks like to be a dad who loves their family. It's everyday faithfulness. Moms who daily exhaust themselves and wondering, how could I do this again another day? And you do it another day. It's seen in the everyday faithfulness for all of us 
of loving the people who are really hard to love. Of silencing the screaming in your head that is telling you, just check out, they'll probably be done in about five minutes, and then you can leave. No, listen to their rant. Listen to their rant. And don't even already be thinking, oh, here's what I could say to them. Here's how I could fix their problem up with a nice little boat. No, be real flesh and blood. Be there with them. Listen to their problem. Salt and light lead to being a faithful people because we have a really faithful Savior who meets us in the everyday, who meets us in the mundane. And what's amazing, Redemption Church, is I see this all of the time. This is what you guys are doing. All those examples I just listed are ones I see in all of you. Church, the Spirit is doing this in us right now in our midst. We are a people who are becoming a really faithful people who just follow Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. For the parents who are doing this work, for the missional communities who are loving people who are really hard to love, for the older generation amongst us, which we're so thankful for those of you who are the older generation ahead of us like millennials, you guys are pouring into us. You guys are sticking it out with us. Thank you for doing that. You guys are being faithful to us. So I think that a way that we can be salt and light is through being a people continually committed to that everyday faithfulness, being a people who are faithful. So to wrap all this up, remember we talked about that revolution at the beginning? It's happening. The Jesus revolution is still happening today. It's happening today in Hampton Roads. It's happening in our church. It's happening in our neighborhoods. And I really believe that Jesus, and again, this is just where we're at in our preaching series, and I think this is where we're at as a church. He's calling us to go. He's calling us to be salt and to be light. And I hope that even now, you can begin to connect and see, wait a minute, but where is all this leading us to? People of uncommon courage, people being willing to go, people who are real-life people, real flesh and blood, people who are willing to be sent and be faithful. Go to verse 16, the one verse we didn't talk about. It's so that people would see and know the Father. So that people would see and give glory and praise to the Father. The point isn't drawing attention to us. The point is that people would actually see this light, this salt in us and say, wow, there really must be a God. Friends, all of this is so that people would be impressed by our God, impressed by his son, and that they'd actually see that work in our lives. So, in one sense, this is where the sermon ends and the work begins. How is he calling you to be salt and to be light? What are ways right now that you can see individually or even corporately? How could Redemption Church and our people, not this building, but us as a people, how could we be that city set on a hill? How could we be people like salt and like light? Let's pray. Jesus, we, we thank you that you, by the power of your spirit, the same spirit who brought life to the dead body of Jesus, is that same spirit who's at work in us, in our hearts, in our minds. So, Spirit of God, we ask that you would show us these ways to be salt and light. Spirit, I ask that even now, 
Possibly in the minds of some of us, the enemy is already wanting to plant seeds of doubt. Maybe for some of us, we've actually only felt an exposure of our failures versus actually being able to see ways that you're calling us to go forward. Spirit, I ask that you, through the good news of Jesus, would dispel those doubts, would dispel those lies. Because for many of us, we can very quickly say, here's the long list of areas I've failed to be salt and light. And Jesus, each of those is an opportunity to go back to the cross and to repent and believe again in the good news of Jesus. That it's not our life, our obedience, but the life of Jesus for us that is our acceptance. So Jesus, we confess, even corporately, our failures. We confess corporately the ways that we have not been salt and light. And Spirit of God, would you now, through this courage that we receive when we see Jesus' love, would you help us to be people who can say, I don't need to live in the world of my failure because here are the ways Jesus is calling me to be a witness for him. God, even tying back in from earlier, we prayed for people that you would be sending us to, people who don't yet know the good news of Jesus. God, would you send us, would you give us divine, spirit-filled creativity for how to be salt and how to be light, we pray. Not so that Redemption Church gets suddenly big or suddenly really popular, no. So that people would come to know Jesus. They would be called into his people, his called out ones. So even now, as we go to sing, Jesus, would you direct our eyes yet again to you and your faithfulness?